Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hello, this is the Red Fox Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley. Hello, wherever you're listening to the podcast, but particular hello to uh, Matt Shapiro. He got in touch to say he listens to the podcast on his walk into school in Ashia City in Japan, uh, which is between Kobe and Osaka. He says, where possible, I have my advanced level English students listen in preparation for their matriculation at UK universities. Although he says, to be honest, about 99% goes over their heads, but they like the different accents. Uh, so thank you very much for that, Matt. And hello to Jack, slightly less glamorously, but he got in touch to say he was a huge fan of the show and he was listening to the podcast during his second hour of waiting in line for the hairdressers. So are you listening in a more or less glamorous place? Get in touch with me now. You can email me matt.chorley at times.radio and we'll say hello to you on the podcast. Anyway, there's a cracker coming up today in the big thing on the podcast the politics of food. It's 20 years since Robin Cook gave his famous speech about how chicken tikka masala summed up multiculturalism in Britain. We speak to two food historians uh, for a trip down sort of political food memory lane. Uh, The impact of food on politics, whether it's Margaret Thatcher, milk snatcher, the pasty tax... Ed Miliband's bacon sandwich and everything else in between. So that's coming up in the big thing. I'll have you salivating if you're listening to this while you're eating your lunch or your dinner. But first, as ever, we kick off with our columnist panel. And on Monday, it is, of course, Libby Purvis and Rachel Sylvester. It's that time of the political cycle where football and politics collide. The reason I wanted to... Well, A, I'm not sure if either of you are massive uh, football fans. Does anyone want to fess up to that, first of all? Well, I've got... I'm not, but I've got two teenage boys who are, and there's a lot of anger in our household, I can tell you. Last night, they're absolutely furious about this. Um, oh, by the way, I'm on a train, excitingly. Usually it's Libby who's on a boat or a motorway or something, but you can hear some announcements probably in the background. But it just... It, it, it feels like this is all about money, isn't it? I mean, that's what, I know that that's what everyone's been saying, but it's just this sense of everything that's wrong with our society of the super rich floating away from the rest it doesn't even seem to be about talent because as i understand it these <laughs> clubs are going to stay in this super league forever so they might exactly. become rubbish next year and then you know there's absolutely no fairness to it at all in fact we could just bring in now alex crook from Talkspot. Are you there alex yes good morning Hi, thanks for uh, joining us. Um, first of all, I suppose, if you could answer that question from Rachel, is this Super League thing just all about money? Is there any... Po- I mean, I'm, I'm cynical at the best of times. Is there any possible explanation which isn't just about the dollars? Do you want the short answer to that question? Um, <laughs> yeah, go on the, then. <laughs> the, the, the short answer is there is no other reason for it about money. Yeah. It's self-interest, it's self-preservation, it's pure greed on behalf of the so-called big six. I mean, just to put this into perspective, and we're going to talk about Tottenham, I know it, but how can Tottenham consider themselves to be a European super club? I'm 38. In my lifetime, Tottenham have made very little impact 
on the football landscape. And they're arrogant enough to believe that they're one of the biggest clubs in Europe and they can completely trash hundreds of years of history and, and go off and start their own league and, and nobody's going to criticise them for it. I think it's absolutely abhorrent. I think the timing is a disgrace at a time when this country should be coming together, should be united. This is just going to prove more divisive than ever. Read the room. It, it, it's an absolute <laughs> outrage. And yeah, I can sense that. I can sense that. And, and yet yeah, Tottenham, Tottenham is such a top flight club, uh, ruling the world. They've just sat their manager. Well, listen, it's a good day to bury bad news, isn't it? And it's a <laughs> remarkable diversion tactic um, from Tottenham. Here we are, what, five days, six days before Jose Mourinho was due to lead Tottenham out at Wembley in a Carabao Cup final, a chance to, to win a, a rare major trophy in recent times. And he's gone this morning. I mean, it's absolutely incredible. Um, I can't recall a madder 24 hours in football with the Super League stuff and, and, and now this and Listen, I think most Tottenham fans would agree it's it's been an experiment that hasn't worked out. I'm not surprised it hasn't worked out. I thought all along Jose Mourinho would be the wrong fit. He's a checkbook manager. He's working for a chairman in Daniel Levy. He doesn't really want to spend any money. So I didn't understand the appointment in the first place when they had Maurizio Pochettino, who for me was doing a terrific job. But yeah, uh, as seems to happen with Jose Mourinho, it's all turned sour very quickly and he's gone. And he's gone. And I'm sure that, you know, maybe now they'll get the checkbook out because they'll be able to spend all their Super League money on uh, getting another manager. Uh, Alex, thanks so much for joining us. Alex there from uh, Talk Sport. Alex Cook um, talking us through the, the latest uh, football news. Uh, Libby, where are you? Are you a big, are you a big football fan? Uh, people don't generally come to me for advice on football, but I have been reading all about this this morning very carefully. And you wanted songs, right, to go with, yes, to go go with the, the, the proposal? Well, there's an old one I can offer you. It goes, I'm the man, the very fat man who waters the workers' beer. And what do I care if it makes them odd, if it makes them terribly queer? I have a care at car, a yacht and an aeroplane and I waters the workers' beer. It just sounds like very rich people um, sort of leeching off and rather spoiling a lot of ordinary people's perfectly innocent pleasure in football and it just feels sad and fat catty I hate it and I, I suppose it's a sort of it's a perfect sort of uh, distillation of you know what's wrong with everything uh you know where money drives everything you know they, wa- they water they water the workers beer absolutely exactly. they water so the fat, fat man who waters the workers beer he's still here what could uh, what could or should the government do about it? Is this something the the, the 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 politicians should get involved in, or has that ship sailed long ago? Do you think, Rachel? Well, I'm not sure there's anything practical they can do. I don't know in terms of legislation, but I think if the fans kick up enough of a fuss and the players, I mean, imagine if Marcus Rashford, arguably the most powerful man in Britain, was to say, I don't think this is a good idea. I'm not going to play in this new thing. That would, you know, kibosh it. Um, uh, but I, what I thought was interesting is it took about five minutes for Boris Johnson and Keir Starmer both to issue statements on this via Twitter. And it's very much, you know, proving your commitment, proving your man of the people people that you can um, you immediately condemn this uh, and that both sides are sort of universal condemnation from the political class. Um, but I'm not sure whether in terms of legislation they can do anything, can they? But I'm really not an expert on that. Well, no, it, 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 because we as um, uh, we were talking earlier about how when politicians uh, have dipped their toe into football before, whether it's been, you know, Tony Blair remembering people playing who have, you know, long since stopped before he was even born, I think. You know, David Cameron famously claiming to be an Aston Villa fan, then announcing at a press conference that he was a fan of West Ham. 
um, there's something about the politi- you know, politicians and football are sort of tend to make uneasy bedfellows, I suppose. I mean, actually, I think, I think uh, uh, Keir Starmer is probably more of a fan. I think he, he, he plays five-a-side every week. And um, I think he's an Arsenal fan, I think, isn't he? Is it the same as uh, one of the few things he's got in t- common with uh, Jeremy Corbyn? Do you think this will have any cut across sort of um, politics more generally, Libby, and the idea of sort of the government intervening because there's no it's not illegal what they're proposing doing it just doesn't sound very nice uh yeah i i think it's maybe the role of ministers you know talking as themselves talking as man of the people to condemn to say this is an awful idea and we regret it and we're going to find ways to tax these guys even more than we do now uh but i don't think they can intervene i just don't you know I, I think the idea that government has to organize everything just leads you up and down a very slippery slope and we've had way too much of that the last year already uh, i think they can condemn but i don't think they can do anything well we'll find out uh, later on when uh, oliver dowden uh, makes an emergency statement to the house of commons uh, let's move on there because i feel like we've possibly exhausted the full extent of the the uh, the football expertise of the three of us um let's let's uh, turn to a slightly safer ground and education rachel you've you're heading up the Times Education Commission. You wrote it was a really interesting piece last week about how schools need to spot what you call the lost Einsteins. What 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 is a lost Einstein? Actually, in a funny way, this follows on from the football conversation because it's about the sort of missing talent and the sort of talent of people who do manage to get to the top because they come from a sort of privileged background. But actually, the the sort of lost Einsteins, the people from disadvantaged backgrounds who don't get the chance to fulfil their talent. And there was a really interesting study in America which found that if um, uh, underprivileged pupils achieved at the same rate of inventions as white, wealthy boys, then there will be four times as many inventions in America, that, yeah. uh, which would generate huge income. So there's this sense of the lost talent, the missing opportunities that poorer pupils are having. That's not just a sort of unfair and wrong and socially unjust. It's also economically nuts um, and that we're, we're wasting all this talent. And one of the things that we want to look at with the Education Commission is how you can narrow that attainment gap and make sure that everyone gets to fulfil their potential, uh, you know, whether they're rich or poor, black or white, male or female, and that it just there's a much sort of fairer spread. And that actually that's good not only for them as individuals and us as a society, but for the economy. Libby, you've spent a long time looking at and reporting on education. Um, quite often it's easier to f- identify the problems than it is to find solutions. Well, I think uh, the great thing is what Rachel's saying is absolutely it's a very useful way of looking at the problem of declining social mobility by pointing out that it's not just the welfare of lower income and education groups that matters, but the benefit to everybody, uh, these Einsteins and Galileos and Dysons and McKellens. But I think what is interesting here is that we've become too fixated on race and sort of literal diversity and on offence and on culture and on respecting cultures and way too little on actual education. And as Rachel robustly pointed out last week, what is needed is more good teachers. It's also artists in residence, it's sports instructors, it's attention to the actual welfare of people at every level of the education system. And alongside that, there has to be some acceptance that some people will inevitably move kind of downwards, you know, that there will be people from maybe upper echelons who will take more lowlier jobs simply because when some move up, some move down. But I think 
uh, you know, to focus more tightly on actual education, on real education, rather than on this endless kind of cultural tiptoeing round and round and round and sort of worrying about making schools be a sticking plaster for every social problem. Um, I, I'm really hoping for robustness out of this education committee, real times type robustness. And I totally trust Rachel to uh, steer it in that direction. Well, can you can you can you promise robustness, Rachel? <laughs> Always, Libby. Um, and I think you're absolutely <laughs> right. It's it's really important that I think the education system becomes so sort of narrow as well, and the, it's all about the sort of mark scheme and teaching to the And actually, it's about you need to have that broader education. Um, giving you're not just creating Einstein; you might create the next Hilary Mantel or Ian Helen or Rashford even, that there's got to be a broader range in schools and not just about what your GCSE grades are. Uh, and the other thing that's interesting is I think a lot of this goes right back to the beginning. So there's a fascinating figure that in that, that very controversial race review that the government published. And they found that, um, in fact, quite a high proportion, uh, it was 40% of the development gap that was there at 16, was in fact, there between the advantage and disadvantage at the age of five. So how important it is to deal with the way parents are so that schools can get on, as Libby says, with the sort of actual education. Yeah, I suppose that's what's really important, isn't it? It, is the, it needs to be more than just, uh, yes, you're the person who can top our league tables. Uh, and that's, you know, if that's all schools are sort of focused on and then other people get um, overlooked. Uh, just finally, uh, just a small matter of climate change. Uh, the United States and China promising to adopt more ambitious goals to fight climate change in an agreement between the world's two largest uh, polluters. It's been praised by many environmental activists. Uh, John uh, Kerry uh, was in Shanghai to sort of uh, do the deal with his Chinese counterpart. He's obviously um, President Biden's special envoy for climate. This could be potentially quite a big year for climate change, couldn't it, uh, Libby, with the uh, COP26 talks in uh, Glasgow due this autumn? Although, from what we read in The Spectator last week, they seem more interested in getting um, was it Chris, Chris Martin from Coldplay to front the whole thing up rather than focusing on what they might actually agree? Yeah, well, I mean, well, one, one must always hope, and anyone talking to anyone seriously on this subject, you know, US, China, uh, whatever, is fine. I mean, the uh, Biden target, uh, America's uh, US is the second biggest emitter, um, you know, is, is probably going to be quite a high target. And the green groups are saying, right, 50% cut by 2030, which is enormous. Uh, whether you can persuade China to cut um, enough, I don't know. But but talk, talk, talk. You know, get, keep keep the channels open between the superpowers. Uh, that's that's the only the only thing which can help. I suppose a deal is better than. <laughs> I was going to say any deal is better than no deal, and I suddenly no. realised I've got to chill down my spine at the very thought of it. Um, <laughs> Rachel, do you detect this is a that, that, that Boris Johnson's government is one which will will secure meaningful uh, sort of agreements in in the autumn? Well, the issue is really how much people we are all willing to sacrifice. So, how tough is the government actually ready to be, uh, and how? groundbreaking in that deal because to make that level of difference that Libby's talking about you know that involves us changing our lifestyles you know flying less driving less all the things that people particularly in America love to do and and here too uh, so is the government really willing to 
take on those things. Uh, I'm not sure it's quite clear yet whether they are domestically, let alone leading the way internationally. Libby Purvis and Rachel Sylvester, then, of course, you can read them both in The Times. You just need to get yourself a Times digital subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, it's the politics of food. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast. Now, feeling peckish? We are, as they say, what we eat. And the politics of food is a powerful weapon which can broaden appeal or undermine even the most successful campaigner. From Churchill's daytime drinking to Thatcher Thatcher milk snatcher, Ed Miliband's bacon sandwich to George Osborne's pasty tax, from the Brexiteers' pizza club to the independent group's cheeky Nando's. What politicians eat how they eat it, even how they talk about what they eat. It all plays a key part in our national political life. 20 years ago today, Labour Foreign Secretary Robin Cook made a famous speech celebrating multiculturalism and integration, which he said had been encapsulated in one dish. Chicken tikka masala, Robin Cook said, is now a true British national dish, not only because it is the most popular, but because it's a perfect illustration of the way Britain absorbs and adapts to external influences. Chicken tikka is an Indian dish, he said. The masala sauce was added to satisfy the desire of British people to have their meat served in gravy. He went on to say that coming to terms with multiculturalism as a positive force for our economy and society would have significant implications for our understanding of Britishness. At the time, the Tikka Masala speech, as it's now become known, sparked a huge storm with the Conservatives forced to defend themselves against charges of racism and them accusing Robin Cook of stirring the anxieties of ethnic minority communities in Britain. Nowadays, when politicians use food to discuss Britain's place in the world, it tends to become an economic argument about trade and GDP. Famously, this was Liz Truss, then Environment Secretary at the 2014 
Conservative Party conference. We import two-thirds of all of our apples. We import nine-tenths of all of our pears. We import two-thirds of our cheese. That is a disgrace. Part of the reason these speeches work, part of the reason why Robin Cook's speech was so impactful is that it tackled an abstract concept through something very visual. All the great political communicators paint a picture with words, but in his case, he was literally cooking up a mental image. So let's bring in two food historians who've highlighted Robin Cook's speech as a key point in political food history. I'm joined by Dr Lisa Smith from the University of Essex. Uh, But first, Dr Rachel Rich from Leeds Beckett University on the significance of that Robin Cook speech. I love that speech, first of all. I I have to start by saying that. I think when you read it now, it's a very clear indication of how much the public discourse around sort of immigration and multiculturalism has really shifted over the past two decades. And I guess because for me, when Robin Cook made that speech, that was around the time when I was first sort of arriving in this country and sort of acclimatizing myself. I guess it made an impression on me. And I think that for him, it was entirely positive that chicken tikka masala should be the British national dish. Whereas I think that you know, in the era we're in now, it's very difficult to imagine any politician speaking quite so positively about foreign or international influences on what it means to be British. Okay, let's turn to Dr. Lisa Smith now from the University of Essex. What for you was particularly significant about Robin Cook's speech? The one thing that really strikes me about about this speech is not just I mean, you, you say that it's a, a visual metaphor, but I think food is one of the most powerful metaphors and it can come up whether or not we're talking about exporting cheeses or importing cheeses and what that means or thinking about, you know, what does it mean to eat British food, whether it's chicken tikka masala or is it the, you know, the roast beef, the proverbial roast beef that we always hear about. So I think what really... Um, is interesting about that speech is how food itself is being used as an image of inclusiveness. And it's a clear political message about inclusiveness, you know, what food you choose to emphasise in it. I suppose as well, it's all a bit of a statement of the obvious, isn't it? But we, we all eat food. So when a politician is trying to be inclusive, reach as many people as possible, build a coalition of voters, broaden your appeal... You want that shared experience and you can talk about driving, but not everyone drives a car, not everyone owns their own home. But Rachel, everyone eats food. I always start when I teach about food history. That's exactly what you said is my opening gambit is, look, we all eat. So anything else you talk about as a historian might only apply to certain people at certain times. But when you're talking about food, it is really universal. Um, But at the same time, it's very particular. Um, And that can be at the national level of talking about the Sunday roast as some, you know, uh, you know, the Sunday roast is a plate which encapsulates what it means to be British. 
but actually if you go down further and further you can get regional variations and down to you know each family's weird unique traditions of what they eat and so it kind of captures all the layers of our identity and I think that maybe again just to refer back to Robin Cook for, for another moment that that's what he was sort of playing on was you know you can have multiple identities it doesn't undermine how British you are to say that you eat foods from elsewhere um, whereas the kind of trade narratives about sort of global Britain now are more about the economics of trade than about the kind of personal cultural benefits of what trade is going to bring to your dinner table for example. Now of course 20 years ago today Robin Cook talking about chicken tikka masala was using food as a metaphor for uh, changes in British society but all too often Politicians come unstuck when they make a meal of things, but by coming between the great British public and their favourite food and drink. You know, we talked about Margaret Thatcher and uh, when she was Education Secretary wanting to cut free school milk. George Osborne's pasty tax in 2012, which played into the idea of an out-of-touch Tories taking liberties and lunch. It was in the budget in that year, in 2012, that George Osborne had proposed imposing VAT on all hot snacks sparking something of a public outcry. Last year, uh, George Osborne told me when he knew that things had gone wrong. Well, I knew that I had a problem when I turned up and Marie Antoinette was standing outside the Treasury handing out pasties. <laughs> Do you know, if, uh, it, I mean, it, it was kind of politically challenging. There's no doubt about that. But the real problem was the economy wasn't doing very well in 2012. That's what I was focused on. At the same time, Labour hoped to exploit the pasty tax row. Ed Balls told me about when he took Ed Miliband and Rachel Reeves into a Greg's. Everybody was up for it. So we go in with this TV camera, me and Ed and... Uh, Rachel Reeves and I say, can we have um, eight sausage rolls all in separate banks? Look, anybody who's ever bought a sausage roll from Greg's while on the motorway knows you've got kids in the back. They need a separate bag or else the crumbs go everywhere. So I think it showed an inside knowledge of sausage roll ordering. But people were a bit taken aback because Ed Miliband, who I'm not sure if he's ordered that many good sausage rolls, returned <laughs> to me and said, why do you want eight? And it was kind of, and I became the mass sausage roll consumer. And then when David Cameron came to address the cameras in Downing Street, he was forced to explain when he'd last eaten a pasty. I love a hot pasty. I think the last one I bought was from the... Uh, West Cornwall Pasty Company, um, who I seem to remember I was in Leeds Station at the time. The only trouble was the, the shop he claimed to have visited had actually shut down years earlier. Lisa Smith from the University of Essex. This round wasn't really just about a few extra pence on a pie or pasty, was it? It, it was saying to politicians, back off, this is ours. I think it's very much about identity and, and what really struck me about about the discussions around the, the pasty tax was how much of it was that sense of how out of touch these politicians were and what did they know about the working people? What did they know about how we, you know, go to the bakery and decide to get our, our pasty or our sausage roll? And also that sense of, you know, although, what was it, 50p or something that it might have raised the prices by. It wasn't a huge amount. You're right. But that can somehow feel quite substantial if you're paying £2.50 versus £3, for example. And also the sense that, you know, why, why this? Why are you picking on the pasty? Why not tax people who can afford to pay the tax more? Um, and that's, that's often something that comes out in these discussions of food, is that sense of, of 
class and I, I mean you describe it as ownership over it and it, 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 it is in part it's that real sense of identity about who does what you know who drinks champagne who eats pasty and a lot of it comes down to authenticity too do people really believe that our politicians eat what we eat you know another thing that springs to mind david cameron on the campaign trail in 2015 eating a hot dog with a knife and fork and of course I mean, one of the, perhaps one of the most famous political food images of all time. Ed Miliband struggling with a bacon sandwich during an early morning photo call in 2014. Stuart Wood, then a Labour advisor to Ed Miliband, once told me how they'd actually kept him in the dark about the four-way for the whole day. The bacon sandwich, Ed Miliband's bacon sandwich moment, which was six o'clock in the morning in a flower market. And um, Bob Roberts, who is his uh, press uh, advisor and I spent the whole day travelling with Ed on local government campaigns and we just watched it build up, build up on Twitter and, and we didn't tell Ed till the end of the day because <laughs> he, he, didn't he, know. he didn't know until about 6, 7 o'clock um, partly because we thought he didn't need to know because he was just doing lots of local authority visits and I still have a slight lack of sense of humour about that because I think it was a, I think it was I think it I think went beyond beyond the limit personally. That was Stuart Wood a few years ago on the Times Redbox podcast talking to me about the bacon sandwich Rachel Witch from Leeds Beckett University, like so much in politics, this, it's authenticity counts. Yes, no, I think it, it, it's a thing that's always a stumbling block. And I wonder whether it's partly a kind of an American import that British politicians have tried to emulate, where there's this idea in American politics that, you know, the guy who gets to be president is the one you'd want to have at your barbecue. Um, and so suddenly you have to be able to eat a hot dog. But David Cameron didn't know how to eat a hot dog. <laughs> and so he shouldn't really have tried. Um, but it's not just Tories. I can remember um, that... Um, Peter Mandelson went into a fish and chip shop in Hartlepool um, and didn't know what mushy peas were and thought they were guacamole, basically. <laughs> well, um, actually, I had him on the show the other day and I asked him about that story and really annoyingly he said it's not true. Oh, uh, I and love Neil that story. Made it up about it. But it's interesting though, isn't it? Because it's lasted for such a long, like 30, 40 yeah. years, that story. Because it speaks to, it's one of those things where it doesn't matter that it's not true. It's, it, it speaks to exactly what people think about Peter Mandelson. Yeah, that's so funny that it's not true because I, yeah. I genuinely believe it. I feel like I was practically there when it happened. <laughs> <laughs> Again, though, like so much in politics, there is nothing new. Food and power have gone hand in hand for centuries. We're looking at George III and how he was using food for self-fashioning or in other words, creating a particular identity. And, and even there, there's a, a sense of, on the one hand, you do have personal taste, you do like certain things as an individual, but at the same time, um, you know, even hundreds of years ago, people were aware of the messages you might give through what people saw you eating or thought that you might eat. Um, and certainly politicians at the time were also interested in that, you know, did, did, you, eat, did you drink port or did you drink French wine? Um, that was a very political decision as well for 18th century politicians. So, you know, how myths get built up is interesting too, because there is a, de a deliberate choice about what you choose to eat in public. Are you trying to look like you're one with the people? And, you know, it can badly backfire. <laughs> it really can. From John Gummer memorably trying to prove that British beef was safe by feeding his daughter a burger. Yeah, she sensibly said it was too hot. To politicians of all colours, desperately trying to avoid being seen to drink champagne, because uh, obviously that would uh, send the wrong message. But away from the gaffes, 
The rich and powerful have also tried to use food on their own terms to try and send political messages. These days, it might be Nigel Farage with a British pint in his hands. Uh, but uh, again, there's nothing new, is there, Rachel? Well, I think that for us, the contrast that we've been drawing is um, between King George III and his successor, King George IV, um, who, you know, for whom both of them, food ended up being quite a potent political tool. Um, in George III's case, it worked for him. So George III was well known to be very careful about his diet. He worried about his weight. He didn't like to get drunk. Um, and he really looked after himself and ate a kind of a modest kind of diet. I mean, modest by the standard of kings in the 18th century was still probably quite <laughs> lavish to you or me. Um, but I think people recognized in him the ability to be frugal in the kitchen, which I think translated in the minds of the public with the ability to, you know, manage the national purse strings well, you know, and I think that that's a, an important quality that you want in, in, in the sovereign, but also in politicians. And he was followed then by his son, who became George IV, and who was, you know, known to be um, a very gluttonous eater and a big drinker and, you know, didn't watch his weight um, and was caricatured for that. But also, I think, you know, viewed with distrust by the people compared to how they'd seen his father. Um, so we've been, you know, we've been doing this project funded um, by the British Academy, um, which is exactly to look at the kind of the long term place of food in British identity. And we've been looking at those two kings. That's really interesting. My, my thought you talking about that, my thought immediately turns to George Osborne at the height of austerity. He went on a crash diet, the 5-2 the diet. So he was, again, tightening his own belt as he was telling the country uh, to do the same. And more recently, in the last 12 months or so, uh, Boris Johnson, after uh, being hospitalised with coronavirus and the links between coronavirus and obesity, and Boris Johnson extolling the virtue of losing weight. My friends, I was too fat. And I've since lost 26 pounds, and you can imagine that in bags of sugar. And I'm going to continue that diet because you've got to search for the hero inside yourself in the hope that that individual is considerably slimmer. It's about moral authority, right? I mean, I think there's a long history in the West of reading people's bodies as the kind of evidence of their morality, um, which is maybe why we're so obsessed with obesity as much as anything. You know, I think it's to do with kind of moral code as much as it is to do with health or ill health. Um, and I think that George III kind of understood that moral code. You know, you can see this playing out in other ways too. For example, during the French Revolution, um, they brought in the, the bread of equality. So bread had to be made in a particular way and everybody, no matter what their social status, had to eat that particular bread. So it was, you know, very much a, a sense of, you know, austerity and doing what's right across the board. So I think, yes, there is a, a sense that you need to tighten your belts during um, times of crisis or, you know, we we're talking about austerity and, you know, the literal um, tendency to tighten your belts. But then also afterwards, the hope that you can you can let loose a bit more. Yeah, yeah, like in the French Revolution, after the bread of equality, there came the kind of backlash where all the people who could were sort of eating out in restaurants and really like going crazy with food um, to celebrate, I guess, the end of that difficult period. But also, I think with food um, and politics, it's it's not always about foreign foods being associated with kind of political loyalty to your country or nationalism. I think there's also very much a class element to it. 
Because mm-hmm. if you look historically at the kind of the British elite, the British elite eat food that's very, very strongly influenced by French food and French styles of dining, whereas sort of, you know, so-called ordinary people um, are much more of the kind of Sunday roast variety and sausage rolls. And so this, the foods that we think of as British also actually have an association with lower classes rather than upper classes because the upper classes eat sort of more refined and delicate foods which tend to be kind of European influenced and I think that was true for George III's era and it's true to some extent now Um, and it means that there's a way in which you can sort of start to question the loyalty of politicians uh, through their food Um, and that's I guess I guess part of the thing which is why it seems inauthentic you know when um, David Cameron tries to eat a sausage with a knife and fork. All this talk of France is making me think of freedom fries now and how when France opposed the US invasion of Iraq in 2003, French fries in America became freedom fries. Yeah, that was a pretty funny episode. <clears throat> but I've noticed also that here now, like a lot of the things when you go to the supermarket have like a strong kind of this is British you know the sausages might have like a little Union Jack in the corner on the packaging or things and I wonder like if that is quite a sort of Brexit era phenomenon because I don't remember it being as pronounced before. Yeah we saw that recently on someone on Twitter remarking about a flag on some butter and then everyone on social media going into meltdown about just how patriotic butter should be and then recently we had this Jacob Rees-Mogg saying that apparently even our fish are feeling more patriotic. They're now British fish, and they're better and happier fish for it. And I wonder, are there foods that we now see as being very British, which basically we've imported from all over the world? I I, I would say yes to that. Um, And I think that one of the difficulties about um, answering that question is that those those influences have been present for so long that it's almost impossible to kind of untangle them. And I think that that's one of the things that's so fascinating about teaching about the history of food and researching it is that what you realize is that the concept of a kind of an authentic identity, whether it's British, English, Scottish, Welsh, or any other identity, is impossible to find at the dinner table because all the things we think of as British are, you know, influenced from everywhere. I mean, the roast potato on your Sunday dinner plate um, is a new world food. Food, which you know wasn't grown in Britain until sort of the early modern era. Yeah, and then there was um, you know 18th century. You start seeing things like pasta dishes, um, especially macaroni, which is now a staple a staple of all children's menus in Britain. Um, and that was quite a new thing in the 18th century in in Britain. And then of course there's tea, the ultimate definition of Britishness known all over the world for our our love of a cuppa and yet Rachel it doesn't even come from here yeah and being part of the story of the British Empire which I think you know there's been so much talk obviously you know over the past year but even for longer I guess about you know how to manage that legacy of what it means to be British you know um, and to have had this empire and the gains from it and I think that things like stirring a teaspoonful of sugar uh, into a cup of tea we, you know it, it, it is an invitation to think about the legacies of the slave trade and of you know colonial plantations and all these things 
And that shouldn't necessarily mean that people can't enjoy their cup of tea, but I think it does offer us an opportunity because, you know, as we said at the start of the conversation, food is a universal thing. We all eat, we all drink. Um, and so if people do want to know more about what it means to be British, then kind of asking questions about the things that they consume and think of as quintessentially British is one way to start kind of getting a handle on some of those legacies. To go back to the chicken tikka masala speech, I, I'm really struck too by how in the 18th century, it's when you start to see curry appearing in English cookery books um, and also the occasional Chinese food. And so, you know, as, as part of that empire, they are bringing in these foods from all around the world. And so, you know, by the time Robin Cook, Cook gives his speech, that, that curry has now become fully part of, of the, the British culture and what it means to be British. And yet there was a long process by which it made it on to British dining tables and became a part of that, that diet. And I think a much longer history than just the 20th century one we often associate that speech with. That was Dr. Rachel Witch from Leeds Beckett University and Dr. Lisa Smith from the University of Essex, both food historians joining me on the podcast to examine the connection between food and politics to mark 20 years since Robin Cook's chicken tikka masala speech on multiculturalism and integration. Uh, thanks so much for joining us for this episode. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from and let me know where you're listening. Email me, matt.cholly at times.radio. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.